Welcome to the Living Hope Podcast. Living Hope Fellowship is a church located in Lexington, Kentucky. You'll find that we're more than just a church, but we're also a family. You can learn more about the ministries of Living Hope Fellowship at www.lhfellowship.com. Now, here's today's message. Uh, John chapter 4. Last Sunday we looked at, uh, and what we've been doing, what we started last Sunday, is we're looking at people who, every one of us, we have a story. We have a story. If you know Christ as your Savior, you have a story of grace. You have a story of what your life was like before Christ how Christ invaded your life or what what things led to that and what your life has been like after Christ. If you are a Christian, you have this story. We all have it. And the components may look a little bit different, but the truth is the same. When Jesus enters your life, your life is changed. And your life is changed forever and your life is changed for the better as well. Um, We started looking last Sunday, and we're going to look for the next couple of weeks at some folks in the Gospels that Jesus met, and when he met them, he changed their life forever. And what he did, he didn't just change what they did, he didn't just change the way they looked, or the things that they believed, what he did was he changed their hearts. And that's important because the Bible tells us that it's out of our hearts that everything else flows. The Bible also gives us a warning about our heart. That the heart is, above all, it's desperately wicked and it's deceitful. And it says, who can actually know it? We can't even know our hearts well. But God knows our hearts. And because he knew our hearts, and because he knew we broke our hearts in sin, and our hearts toward him in sin, he sent Christ as his Savior to be the one who becomes, like we sang about just a moment ago, the king of our heart. And that's the biggest thing, that's the, that's the most important thing that we cannot miss. If Jesus has not touched your life, has not invaded your life, you need him. And you need him today. If I can be so bold just by starting out, I'm going to come out swinging today, all right? You need him today. If you don't have him, you need him. And you can have him before you leave this place today, just like what we're going to talk about today. Does anybody remember who we talked about last week? Zacchaeus, right, short guy, it was a long message though, right, right, short guy, long message, we're going to try to be a little bit, a little bit shorter today, does anybody remember, uh, does anybody remember what we talked about, he was a greedy guy, he was traitorous, right, he became a tax collector, turned his back on his own people, he was spiteful, he was vengeful, he was cutthroat, he was thieving, right, he just wasn't a guy that you wanted to hang around a lot of time, everybody in the town probably hated him, back then. And on top of it all, the Bible said he's a short guy. I mean, you got to love it when you start getting biblical insults thrown at you, right? The Bible insulted his height, right? Um, But what happened to him? He realized that all the money, all the power, all the revenge, all of those things did not fill the void that was in his heart until he met Jesus, right? All the things that he tried to get to try to fill those voids that he had, that every one of us, we know we've got voids in our heart. And we're lying if we say that, oh, my heart is full outside of God. We're lying when we say that. We're lying to ourselves probably more than anybody else. But he said, but, but, but Zacchaeus realized there's a hole in my heart that only God can fill. And he hears about Jesus who is not only is he coming to seek and to save the lost, which he said, but he's spending time with sinners, even tax collectors. I mean, one of the, one of the well-known tax collectors, Matthew, became one of Jesus' disciples. So he's thinking, maybe I got a chance with this guy. So when Jesus comes through Jericho, what's he do? He climbs up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And and, and as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree. We know the song, right? What happened that day? When he met Jesus, he met the only one who could fill that void in his heart. 
Today, we're going to be looking at another person, this time a woman, a woman who was not well-liked either in town. She uh, was probably the subject of a lot of conversation about her, but nobody wanted to talk to her. We know some people like that, right? Maybe you're that person. I'm just teasing. No, I'm just, hopefully not. If you are, Jesus is there. Um, so, but, but the same kind of thing. A woman who had not a lot going for her until Jesus met her, right? We see another count who had many hurts. She had a lot of heartbreaks. She had a whole lot of sins. But just like Zacchaeus, one meeting with Jesus changes her and she's never the same. And also, one meeting with Jesus with her, it actually goes further than just changing her. We're going to see in a little bit. It actually changes a lot of people in her town too. So let's take a look at John chapter 4. We're going to look at a large chunk of scripture today. Uh, but I think it's sometimes better that we just hear the words of God rather than the words of the preacher sometimes. So let's, uh, let's go at verse number one. It says, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not actually baptizing, but his disciples were doing the baptizing. It says, he left Judea and he went again to Galilee. So what we have to understand is Judea down here, Galilee up here, and there's a whole lot of space in between, and we're going to talk about that in just a second, Okay. He had to travel through Samaria. So what does that mean is the space in between? Samaria, right? There's a problem with Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the property. And Jacob had given his son to Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, who was worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. And it was about noontime. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. And, she, and he said, give me a drink to her because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. So Jesus is there all alone, sitting at Jacob's well. Here comes a Samaritan woman, just the two of them. The woman says, how is it that you, a Jew, would ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews do not associate with the Samaritans. And Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who was saying to you, give me a drink, you would not ask him and then he would give you the living water. Or you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? When she says the well was deep, the well, this was, Jacob's well was known to be the deepest well in the entire region. It was known to be a source of water that could supply a lot of people. And it was known as the deepest well around. That's going to be important in just a minute. You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and he drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him, they will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water that I give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water again. And he says to him, go and or he said to her, go and call your husband, he told her. And come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said that I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands. And the man that you now have is not your husband. So what you've said is very true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place of worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know, and we worship what we do know, because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and it is now here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who's called the Christ, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. He's going to be the answer to the question. And Jesus told her, I, the one who is speaking to you, am he. He's like, look no further, I'm here. 
Just then his disciples arrived, and they were amazed that he was talking to a woman. Oh, boy. Uh, yet no one said, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? No one says anything. He just walk up and like, uh. <clears throat> then the woman left her water jar and went into town and told the people, come see a man who told me everything that I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they left the town and they made their way to him. Holy Spirit, I pray this morning that you would speak through the word. I pray this morning that you would captivate us and speak truth to our hearts because it is your truth that sets us free. Be honored and glorified in all things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> There's a book that I read several years ago by Max Lucado, and he, told, he gave this illustration about a woman named Grace Smith. All right? John Doe, Grace Smith. That's about as, as, as original as you can get, right? But she was buried at a cemetery in San Antonio, Texas, and the stone marked the grave of the woman that had been buried there. And here's all the epitaph on the stone said. There was no date of birth that was listed, no date of death, just the names of her two husbands and fo the following epitaph. She sleeps, but she rests not. She loved, but she was loved not. She tried to please, but please not anyone. And she died as she lived, completely alone. That's a tough tombstone, right? Let me, let me read this again. Had names of two husbands and this. Sleeps, but rests not. Love, but was loved not. Tried to please, but please not. And died as she lived alone. How many of you would like those 20 words listed on your tombstone? That'd be what is said about you, right? I mean, think about how lonely and how, how tragic of a life that is to sleep but never rest, never find actual rest. To, and some of you parents are probably thinking, I, I, I identify with that one, right? But to love and never to be loved in return, have all of your attempts at love turned down, to go through two marriages like she did and never have ever experienced love, to be rejected, to be ignored, to be pushed aside, to try to please but always falling short, never measuring up, to be told, you just don't measure up. You're just not good enough. How many times do I have to tell you and you're never going to amount to anything to be told you're never going to do anything right or you're too far gone. You're beyond help. See, those are phrases that fly around a lot of times in our homes and at work sites and in our relationships with people. And words have, words carry consequences, right? What would it be like to live to please everyone and realize you've pleased no one? And what the most tragic line is there is that she lived and she died in the very same way. She lived and died alone, to have no, been known by no one, to have been cared about by no one, and have no significance in life by anybody else. It makes you wonder who actually wrote Grace, Smith, Grace Smith's epitaph, right? If she lived and died alone and never having an interaction. I want you to keep those words in mind because in many ways, the Samaritan woman here in the New Testament is the Grace Smith of the New Testament. This woman had probably tried to sleep but couldn't. She tried to love. We saw five husbands but had never actually found love. And if all intents and purposes, if nothing really changed in the way of her life, she was going to live and die in the same way, alone. It's kind of a tragic case, kind of a tragic story. Here's a single woman who's had many attempts at love. Fulfillment had left her dry, had left her empty and searching for more, and she couldn't find it. So this morning, and I know many of you probably have heard this story of the Samaritan woman many times, and you're thinking, man, I know this one. I'm going to go on autopilot through this message. I want us to stop and maybe take a, take a look again for the first time. I want to take a very deep look at the woman at the well. You get it? Because, yeah, wells are deep. All right, anyway, um, we're going to take a deep look because the wells are deep. Never mind. All right. 
You'll get it at lunchtime. I told you. I'd save in the jokes until I was actually like locked in here, and now you got to deal with them. All right. As many of you, like I said, Linda, I want to look at about six things very quickly today that we learn about when God changes your heart, that we learn from the Samaritan woman how he can change our hearts and what he goes through in order to do that and what is required for our hearts to be changed. Because the thing is, is that we know, and there's a phrase that we fly around a lot of times, that God is love, that God so loved the world. But his love is such a deep, searching, penetrating kind of love that penetrates us heart and soul. And one of the ways that we see that is by looking at the Samaritan woman. And I believe for all of our like feigned morality and that we're, we say, oh man, I'd be better than her at the, at the core of it. We're not better than Zacchaeus. We're not better than the woman at the well because we all have sin that needs to be dealt with. And so let's look at how Jesus dealt with the Samaritan woman is the way he deals with our sin as well. And the first thing that we have to understand is, number one, is that Jesus is willing to go out of his way to change us. Jesus is willing to go out of his way to change us. We saw in last week's text about Zacchaeus that he said this. Jesus said, I have come, and the reason I've come is to seek and to save those who are lost. Meaning that Jesus left heaven... He left the perfection and the glory of heaven. He put on flesh. He wrapped himself in our flesh. He lived and ate and, and, and all those things with us so he could seek and to save that which is lost. He went out of his way, leaving heaven to come to us. <clears throat> the thing about Jesus is that he was a man who was always on mission. His earthly ministry, he never strayed from the mission that God gave him. And nothing deterred him from that either. See, the goal was, I'm going to seek and I'm going to save those who are lost. And that mission often took him to some undesirable places. It often put him in the company of some undesirable people as well, to which we need to say, thank God that he was willing to go there, right? See, Samaria, there's one commentator that says, when we talk about Samaria being an undesirable place, especially to Jesus being a Jew and being the king of the Jews, what we don't understand is just how badly the Jews looked at Samaria, See, Samaria was not a geographic necessity for Jesus to go to. It was not even a cultural desirable, culturally desirable place for him to go to. But missionally, he had to go to Samaria. The Bible said he had to go through Samaria. Or if you have the translation, it says he must needs go through Samaria. There was a need for him to go through. And what was that need? The woman. The woman was that need. See, Jews wanted nothing to do with Samaria. The fact that Jesus went through Samaria... It, goes, it flies in the face of everything that any Jewish reader or Jewish person would ever think. We even saw that with the disciples. They come back and they're like, all of a sudden, they're, they're not comfortable being in Samaria to begin with. And they come back and they see Jesus talking with this woman from Samaria and they're like, they got nothing to say. They're like, what is going on here, right? Well, Jesus, you have overstepped your bounds now. You see, this encounter should have never taken place. You see, Jews and Samaritans, they didn't talk to each other. They didn't like each other. They hated each other more than Kentucky and Duke fans. They hated each other more than Louisville and Kentucky fans. They hated each other. I mean, despised one another. But the thing I love about Christ is his, his mission is more important than the people's methods. You catch that. Jesus' mission is more important than our cultural methods sometimes. When I say the Jews and Samaritans didn't get along, this is a hatred that had been brewing for almost a thousand years. If you remember back when we were studying through Isaiah, remember when the Assyrians came in and, they, they, and the Babylonians came in and they kind of took over everything? Well, that split the kingdoms of Israel. 
and uh, goes all the way back to the death of King Solomon when Israel was divided in the northern and southern kingdoms. They came in, they conquered Israel, they destroyed the temple in Jerusalem about 721 B.C. And they took people captive and they went off uh, to another place in exile, but they left some of the people behind. Some of the people that were left behind began to move into the area and to the land that was kind of just, you know, that was just kind of left over. And some of the Gentiles and the pagans began to move in there. And the Jews began to marry with the pagans. And then all of a sudden, they had this new race of people that were uh, not pure-blood Jews, which if you were a Jew, that was one of the core values of your life, is that Jews married Jews, right? You didn't intermix and intermingle. And so from that relationship, as Gentiles moved in to that land that was vacated to squat in that place, came the Samaritan race. And the Jewish people never accepted them because they weren't pure-blood Jews. So if you're a Harry Potter fan, think of like muggles and mudbloods. They just didn't like them, all right? So when the Jews returned from exile, the Samaritans wanted to help rebuild the temple. One thing that had happened was these, these pagans had become kind of God worshipers. They wanted to help rebuild the temple when they came back from exile, rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And here's what the Jews said. Uh-uh, no way, ain't going to happen. Get out of here. Go back to where you came from. And that's exactly what they did. They went back to Samaria and they began to settle right there in that area. They built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. They formed their own version of worship, which kind of intermixed and intermingled a little bit of pagan stuff. They edited the copies of scriptures and the laws but they had a form of worship of God still. They had a form of a fear of God, but the Jews never, ever accepted the Samaritans. They looked at them as impure, and they looked at them as, as having de, uh, uh, defaced the law of God. So about 600 years pass in 128 B.C., the Jews have gotten strong enough, and they come in, and they attack Mount Gerizim, and they destroy the temple there in Mount Gerizim, which makes them hate them even more. So when Jews needed to make a trip from down here in Judea up there in Galilee, and Samaria stands in the middle, guess what happened? They didn't go to Samaria. They went out of their way. They would cross over the Jordan. They would go all the way up, and they would cross back over the Jordan when they got past Samaria. This is how much they hated them. It would add weeks, days, sometimes even months, depending on how slowly you were moving to your journey. It was that important that they did not come in contact with any Samaritans. Matter of fact, one Jew, famous Jewish rabbi was known for saying, we must not go to Samaria or talk to Samaritans lest the dust of their, lest the dust of their stench touch the sandals of our feet. Matter of fact, when Jews came in contact with a Samaritan, they were known to bathe before they returned to the Jewish community. This is how much they hated the Samaritans. So when we understand this, <laughs> and all of a sudden the scene is set that Jesus is sitting there at, in Samaria, in Sychar, and a Samaritan woman walks up and says, hey, and Jesus says, hey, can I have some water? This is not just like, oh, that's weird. This is like crazy weird. Crazy weird. You don't do this. But Jesus cared more about the mission of his father than the methods of his people. That's how much he cared for a broken soul. So he went out of the way to change her, but this is what he does for us. He goes out of the way to change us as well. This is the same thing he did for us. He left heaven's throne when he could have stayed there to be obedient to the Father, and he said, I'll go. He went out of his way for 33 years so he could seek and to save those who were lost. See, Jesus goes out of the way to save us. Also, too, the thing we have to understand is Jesus is not shocked by our story of sin. See, if we're saved, we all have a story of grace. But before we're saved, and even, even after we're saved, we still have a story of sin, don't we? 
We still have a story that is tainted by sin. None of us in here are perfect. If this is, this is going to give you joy, especially for some of you who are really like a condemning, kind of condescending person, look at the person next to you and say, you are not perfect. All right, good. Now that other person, look back and say, neither are you. <laughs> I don't want to start any fights here, and there's probably going to be a lot of marriage counseling going on now. But seriously, none of us are perfect. None of us. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew, a Samaritan, it matter if you're white or you're black, you're from the South or from the North, you're from America or you're from, from Zimbabwe. It doesn't matter. We are all the same in the eyes of God. We are sinners in need of a Savior. And Jesus isn't shocked by our sin because, newsflash, God knows everything. So the sins that we become really good at hiding from everybody else, especially in church, God knows them. You go, and the thing that's funny in my prayer life is I go to God and say, Lord, I did this. And never once has God gone, no way. I can't believe you did that. He knows. And he's the one that we wrong the most in our sins. But he's not shocked by that story. The woman was shocked that Jesus would even speak to her culturally. Later on, she's going to be even more shocked that he would speak to her spiritually as well. See, the woman had three things going against her already. The first one was that she was a Samaritan. We already talked about that. The second thing was that she was a woman. You see, in Jewish culture and in ancient Eastern culture that day, men did not speak with women in public places. If they did... It was talked about, and it was seen to be kind of like, you know, uh, you know, rabbis especially, which Jesus was noted as a rabbi at this time, rabbis were noted to never speak to a woman in a public setting because it was seen as beneath their holiness. Now, you can take that with what you will. My daughters would start screaming patriarchy at this point, but, you know, whatever. Matter of fact, it's recorded that rabbis would not even speak to women of their own family. They wouldn't speak to their wives, their mothers, their daughters in a public setting either, which probably made date night a little bit awkward. <laughs> Sitting there at Olive Garden, and she goes, honey, how do you like your fettuccine? And he's like, I'll tell you at home, shut up. You know, it's like, <laughs> you can't do anything. It's ridiculous, right? And therein lies the very reason, and one of the reasons, and, and, and the other problem was that she's a social outcast. See, having been married five times, that gets you popular, but not for the right reasons, right? Most people didn't want to talk to her. The women of the town definitely didn't want to talk to her. They didn't want her anywhere around their husbands. So this is why we see that she comes to the well when she does. The Bible says that she comes to the well at about the sixth hour, which is noon, the hottest time of the day over there in a very hot, arid, dry region. Why would she do that? Any woman in her right mind would go and collect water in the cool of the day at the beginning of the day when it wasn't so hot and when water was needed in the mornings. But she goes there at noon. Why do you think that is? To avoid being seen by anybody, to avoid being, being glanced at, to avoid being scorned and avoid being mocked by all the other people, all the other women that are going to the well. So she's willing to suffer the scorching heat of the sun so she doesn't have to endure the scorching looks of all of the other judgmental people in town. But when she gets there, there's Jesus spoiling her plan, her schedule, and also spoiling her privacy, as if you have privacy with God, because like I said, he, he knows everything. And he catches her off guard. She walks up. I can imagine her walking up with her pot and going, whoa, who's this dude? And then to top it all off, more than likely, she's probably going to turn around to leave, and he says, hey, I'd like some water. And she's like, why are you talking to me? I'm a Samaritan, and I'm a woman. 
Why are you talking to me? It completely catches her off guard. And then when Jesus, she says, you shouldn't be talking to me, and Jesus utters some of the sweetest, kindest words to her, saying, I have, I'm not here to get anything from you. I'm here to offer you something. I'm here to offer you what you need. I'm here to offer you living water that will never make you thirst again. See, Jesus, what you have to get is Jesus is not threatened or overwhelmed by your sin. He knows you're a sinner, and he's not overwhelmed by the amount of sin that you've committed. It's not the amount, it's none of it. God has to deal with sin, whether it just be an itty-bitty little sin, or whether it be the, all the sins that somebody can commit in the world. Jesus has to deal with all of it. He's not threatened, he's not overwhelmed by your sin, because he came to eradicate it, to destroy it, and to Get rid of it in your life. You see, he could have ordered that woman away. Get out of, the, get out of here, you half-breed woman. I'm occupying this spot. And socially, that would have been acceptable for Christ to say, but he didn't. What does he say in verse number 10? He says, if you knew the gift of God, who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. He made it very clear that he wasn't worried about his comfort. He wasn't worried about his propriety. He wasn't worried about his standing in society nearly as much as he was worried about her probably the first time in her life somebody has done this. And here's the truth. Our sin doesn't throw Jesus off nearly as much as we think it does. You see, don't get me wrong. Does Jesus hate our sin? Absolutely. I'm not trying to say here's a license going sin because Jesus is okay with it. He's not okay with it. But he's also not thrown off by it nearly as much as you think. See, he's not deterred in his mission by our sin. He can handle the fact that we're sinners. That's why he came. He already said that. I came to seek and to save that which is lost. And not only can he handle the fact that we're sinners, he can destroy the sin that separates us from him. And he's the only one who can do that. Here's what 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says. <clears throat> it says, the one who commits sin is of the devil. You want to know how God looks at sin? It says, if you sin, you're doing the work of the devil. That's how he looks at our sin. So lest we make light of our sin, let's see how God looks at it for really. But then what it says, for the devil has sinned from the beginning, and the Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. God is not overwhelmed by your sin. He can destroy your sin, and he destroyed it through his perfect and precious blood shed on the cross. Do you think that Jesus is threatened by Satan's works of evil if his purpose for coming to earth is to destroy all of it? See, from the moment we're born, the devil is already doing a deadly work of sin in our lives. But even before we were born, God had already put into process a plan to redeem us of those sins, to destroy those sins, so that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And here's what it says in Colossians chapter 1. It says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, being Jesus, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood that is shed on the cross. Jesus destroys the sin in us and makes peace with us through his presence in our lives. Again, God's not threatened by our sin. This is why he came. This is why Jesus came, to deal with our sin. And that's what he does. And that's the third thing, is he cares too much for us to leave us the way that we are. See, he knew that the Samaritan woman was a sinner. He knows that we are sinners, so what did he do? He came to that woman. He climbed over every obstacle, cultural, geographical, everything, to get to where she was. That's what Jesus did when he left heaven to come to earth for us. 
He cares too much about us to leave us the way that we are. But in the way that we are, he has to deal with our sin. See, after the, the introductions, Jesus gets right to the point in verses 17 through 19. And he has this discussion about living water. And in verses 17 through 19, he basically says, you need this living water more than the, the water you're coming to draw from this well. Because this living water is going to heal you and it will quench your spiritual thirst, which I know is raging inside of you right now. I know it is. What is beautiful about the way God orchestrates all of this is that, as I said earlier, Jacob's well was known as the deepest well that was around in that region. What's interesting is that when Jesus sits at Jacob's well, the deepest well, that probably is one of the most trusted sources for water in that region to the Samaritans, he says, I got water that goes deeper than this. What I'll give you runs deeper than your deepest possible sin. Conviction begins to set in on her, and she sees her need for her dry soul to be quenched by this living water. And we see that conviction sets in because the next thing Jesus says is, why don't you go get your husband and let's talk a little bit more. <laughs> Hold on, I thought you said Jesus knows everything. Now he doesn't know. Uh, yeah, he knows. So she gets quiet. Go get your husband. She's like, uh. She gets quiet, embarrassed, evasive. Don't we do that when we get convicted too? And then what does she try to do? She tries to cover it. She tries to throw him off the scent, right? She says, I, I don't have a husband. By this time, <laughs> the woman is probably thinking Jesus knows something, and he does. And Jesus knows it all, and he has to deal with the sin. And he says this, I know you don't have a husband, but you've actually had five. And the man that you're with now doesn't really look like he's going to become number six anytime soon. But you're still with him. So we look at this story through Western eyes, <coughs> and we look at that and we think, all right, she's had five husbands. She's been married and divorced five times. Well, here's the deal. If she had legally been able to have a divorce in that culture, she would have been, had committed adultery, which by, in that culture would have been the death sentence. So it's quite possible that either a husband, uh, someone married her and put her away five times, just, just, just divorced her and cast her aside. So imagine what that does to your psyche as a woman, that five people have thought they could be with you, but they can't anymore. All right? Or she's been married and widowed a mixture of times, or she's been widowed five times. We don't exactly know what it is. What we do know is that Jesus points out that the relationship she's currently in is not, is not a moral relationship. And that's why conviction begins to sin. She's trying to cover something up. She's also trying to cover up some shame and guilt because she doesn't want to be around other people. She's isolated herself from other people as well. So what we do know is that conviction sets in, and she also testifies later on. She says, come and see this guy who told me everything I've ever done. That implies every sin I've ever committed. He told me, and he knew about it already. Can you imagine when somebody reads your mail like that, how, how your toes feel after that? See, Jesus didn't bring up these five marriages the current sinful relationship. He didn't bring that up to embarrass her, to judge her, to beat her down, because let's face it, she's been beat down enough, right? She knows where she's at. Why does Jesus do it? Jesus is noting the obvious and letting her know that things don't have to stay the way they are. He's building that up. He's building up that hopeless case so he can say, I'm the hope that you need to pull you out of that pit. So he didn't have to bring it up. He could have just avoided the one that told, uh, he could have avoided the one fact that told more about her than anything else in her life, but he deals with it head on. And this is what we have to understand, even in today's culture. 
We're never going to bring anyone closer to the one who will forgive us of our sin if we just try to skirt the fact that we're sinners. We're never going to do it. We have to deal with our sin head on. See, we try to change the gospel a little bit to Jesus. Man, if you think your life is good now, you just come to Jesus. It's going to make it even better. No, Jesus doesn't just make your good life better. He comes and he resurrects you from a life that you killed through sin. A life that you ended through sin. That's what he does. So we have to deal with the carnage of our sin before we come to understand how beautiful salvation really is. So if you're here today and you know in your life you've got some big holes in it, you've got some baggage that you're carrying around, and maybe you've come to the point where you feel like this woman, man, my baggage is too heavy for anyone. It's not too heavy for Christ. It's not too heavy for him. But we cannot avoid the issue of sin because it will not bring the change that we need. See, sin has led to her brokenness. Sin is what led to her isolation. It led to her embarrassment. And sin is what led to her loneliness. And it had to be addressed. Let me ask you a question. If you go to the oncologist to have tests run, and he sits down and he says, you know what? You got cancer. But I just want to talk to you for the next hour that we have about how pretty your eyes are. Do you really want to talk to somebody about something that has no bearing on your health condition at the moment when you've just been diagnosed with something that they can help you with? Many people, that's the way we want to look at God. Yeah, God, you know I'm a sinner, but let's talk about how good I am. That's not salvation. That's not the gospel. The gospel is we're not good, but Jesus is. And in him, he makes us good through his goodness. See, this may have been the way that people had dealt with her, always avoiding the issue, trying to be fake nice to her, you know? The old southern way, oh, bless your heart, walk away, that's, you know? Here's the thing. She'd probably get one line, one lie after another, but I'm so thankful that Jesus doesn't offer us lines. He offers us life. He's not just spitting lines to try to convince us. He offers us life. And to give life, he has to deal with our sin that we have. So he deals with our sin, and he'll come to those who ask. That's the next thing that we have to understand. He, he'll come to those who ask. See, she truly desired to know how to find God. In verse 20 through 25, we're not going to take the time to read through it, but many people believe that the woman tries to change the subject. Like, okay, this is getting a little too deep. There's Mount Gerizim over there. Let's talk about that for a minute. You know what? You're still a Jew. You tore down our temple. They think that's her attitude. That's not her attitude. I believe she lays it all on the line here and becomes more transparent with God and with Jesus than she'd ever been with anybody else. See, she asked Jesus, who she just said in verse number 19, she thinks is a prophet. Now she's going even further. Maybe this guy's not the prophet. Maybe this guy really is the Messiah. See, remember the Samaritans and the Jews, are, they're both trying to worship the same God, but in different ways. And she's tried, she's tried all, all the things that she could, and she's done all the things that she could, and it hasn't brought her one step closer to God and she wants to know once and for all, how do I truly worship God? How do, I, how do I get on God's good side? That's what she's wanting to know. She's begging, where is God? How can I get with him so I can find resolution for these sins that you just pointed out? It's the cry of the heart that every one of us have. When conviction begins to set in, we're like, okay, I got I to gotta stop this. We start looking for ways. And let me tell you this, there's not a thing you can do there's not a thing that you can do in your own strength to bring you closer to God because Jesus traveled, he traveled, the, he traveled the divide to bring us to him. Remember, he went out of the way because we couldn't get there on our own. He came to us because we couldn't get to him. We can't get to him 
There's no amount of things that we can do that will make us get to him other than this. Ask. Say, Lord, I need you. I need you. He will come to those who ask. And Jesus revealed himself when she asked. He says something very important in verse number 25. She goes, I'm looking for the Messiah because when he shows, he'll tell me all the answers I need to know. To which Jesus responds in verse 26, I'm the one that you're looking for. I'm him. Jesus didn't play games. If you're a Star Wars fan, this is the Luke, I am your father moment, right? I'm the one. I'm the Messiah. Jesus didn't play games with her. He didn't stay in disguise. He could, have, he could have so as not to hold up his trip in Galilee. But he said, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you need, right? He's going to come to those who ask. And it's the greatest truth about the gospel is he will give salvation to those who ask and to those who repent of their sins. Romans 10, 13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you done that? That's what it is to be saved. If you call on the name of the Lord. It's not call on the name of the Lord plus do X, Y, and Z. It's call on the name of the Lord. Realize that he's your savior. Realize that he's your only way. Realize he's your only way for forgiveness and repentance of sins. And you'll be saved. And understand this as we move on. He cares when no one else does. He cares when no one else does. See, the disciples didn't even, the guys that should have known Jesus' mission more than anybody else didn't even understand what he was doing that day. <laughs> See, as, the, as, the man, as Jesus and the woman begin to wrap up their conversation, the disciples return in verse 27, and they walk up, and it's like an awkward moment. Again, like I said, they wondered why in the world Jesus is talking to this woman, but they said nothing. See, last week, where people were vocal, and they said, why are you talking to Zacchaeus, this dirty, rotten sinner? The disciples just sat back and silently judged in this one. We're one or the other, aren't we, in our pharisaical righteousness? We'll, we'll, we'll start spouting off con condemnation to some people, or we'll just stand back and silently judge, well, I would not be doing what that person's doing. Right? When the woman leaves in verse 28, the men are more concerned with food than with the spiritual need of the woman. They're like, Jesus, you need to eat. And they're probably thinking, bro, you are delirious. You need to eat now because you were just doing something crazy. Church, are we more focused on the mission or are we more focused on the method? And that's a question that, that is raised to us here is, are we going to be like Jesus and more focused on the mission or like the disciples and be like, I've lost, I've kind of lost sight of what the mission's really about because Jesus says, I got food that you don't know about and it sustains me. The food that I have, the sustenance I have is to do the will of my father and he takes care of me. And the last thing before we close out this morning is this is that he'll give us a new story to tell. He'll give us a new story to tell. See, the woman could not keep quiet about her meeting with Jesus. How do we know the woman was changed that day? Look what it says in verse number 29 when she goes to see the people of the city. She runs in and she says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. And she poses a question to them. You need to deal with what I dealt with. Could this be the Messiah? Here was a woman who just a little while ago wanted nothing more to do than to get to the well unseen, get back home unseen, and not be bothered by anybody. Now because of her meeting with Jesus, she's like, I got to talk to everybody I can see and beg them to come meet the same Messiah. Can you imagine what the wives must have been thinking? Oh no, he is not talking to my man. She best get away right now. <laughs> I'll tell you why she's talking to your man. Because she's been changed. She's been changed. And she's got a story to tell. In church, if we've been changed, we've got a story to tell too. 
And what I find so interesting is what we see in scriptures when Zacchaeus and these people come to meet the Savior, they can't shut up. But today, in our, 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 our way, we're looking for all the reasons why we can't speak. We're looking for all the reasons why we need to keep quiet. It's a difference. Can we keep quiet about the change that's taking place in our hearts? See, when the story is about Jesus, it can also change the world. And I want you, I want you to take a look at this. In verse number 39, as we close out. Verse number 39 through 42. It says, Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. Did you catch that? He told me everything that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two days. Many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we've heard for ourselves. And we know that this really is the Savior of the world. When Jesus changed the Samaritan woman that day, it also changed the city. It also changed the city because when he changes us, the change is seen in us and it changes others as well. That's how it works. As we go to a time of invitation, I just want to ask you a couple of questions. We bow our heads and close our eyes. And re- Thanks again for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about having a fulfilling relationship with Jesus Christ, or you would like to know more about our church, you can visit us again at our website, lhfellowship.com. Or if you would like and you are in the Lexington area, please feel free on Sundays to stop by and worship with us. Our services are held each Sunday at 1015 a.m. We would love to see you there. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.